right, thank you, thank you, and good morning again, everyone. It's really been great to be here. Uh, I've just been so encouraged by Pastor Bob and just the, the warm uh, welcome that, that I've been given, that we've all been given here, and so it's a real privilege. I will say I'm excited to go back to warm Florida today, but it's been nice to be uh, in cold, the cold north or whatever. Um, Okay, so let me just begin with a story. Uh, a couple years ago, we used to live in Texas. Now we live in Florida. Uh, a couple years ago, though, my wife and I went on a run-of-the-mill dinner and movie night. I guess this was pre-COVID because we haven't done much of that since then. Um, but uh, the movie that Ethel, my wife, selected was the movie La La Land. Has anybody seen La La Land? Hopefully a few. Not as many. Okay, you guys got to go watch this if you haven't. It's not the kind of movie I would have picked, but I'm so glad that my wife, you know, suggested it and had me had us go to it. So in the movie, you have uh, Emma Stone's character, Mia, and she's an aspiring actress, and she has, she longs, you know, her dream is to become an actress in Hollywood, and she longs to make it on the big screen, and basically she goes to uh, audition after audition, and she's always turned away. She never quite makes it. She's always passed over by someone more beautiful or more talented or, or whatever it is. She's just at the brink of wanting to give up on her dream. She's discouraged, she's without hope, but her boyfriend, Sebastian, who's also an aspiring uh, jazz musician, coaxes her to do one final audition. Just do this one last audition. And she's like, fine, I'm gonna go do this last one, and then I'm done, my dream is over. And so she walks into this last audition with a kind of reckless abandonment. And if you know the scene, if you've seen the movie, she walks in and there's these two casting agents sitting on a table, and that's it, in an empty room, and they ask her to tell us a story. She thinks for a minute, and then a smile curls on her lips, and then she begins to sing the most beautiful story about her aunt who inspired her to become an actress, and she sings this ode to dreamers. And I can remember sitting in the movie theater that night with my wife, and there was something about the beauty and the intensity and all the emotions and the years of toil and longing that were wrapped up in that song, and it unlocked something in me. And it unlocked something in my wife. And we were laid bare. And so we did what anyone would do in that moment. We cried. We wept uncontrollably in the movie theater. Thankfully, it was dark, so no one could see us. But we're sitting there, and we're weeping as she's pouring out her heart in this beautiful song to dreamers. Now, to understand that tearful moment, I need to give you a little bit of the backstory, though. Uh, earlier that night, over dinner, Ethel and I had been talking about our hopes and our dreams, and we'd been talking about art. And... So just to give an example, Ethel, my wife, for years, even before we were married, she had longed to write fiction. And she's longed to write fiction in the, the vein of like a Wendell Berry or a Marilyn Robinson or a Flannery O'Connor, if you know these names. These are authors that can evoke the good and the true and the beautiful and the divine without being crass or without being preachy. And she longed to write and to write fiction. But as you can imagine, all the challenges of raising a family of four, Ethel uh, and I homeschooled our kids for a number of years, and then with her supporting me as I would pursue these higher degrees in, in philosophy and theology, basically she didn't have time to pursue that part of her dream. But by, by about the time we were on that dinner uh, and movie date, we'd all agreed as a family that it was sort of Ethel's time to pursue this part of her dream. I was happily teaching at a seminary in Fort Worth, and um, our kids were you know, older and in high school and middle school, and so Ethel, we basically enrolled Ethel in one class, a creative writing class down the road in Dallas, actually at, at Dr. Bach's seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, and she took one creative writing class. And I can remember her taking that first class, and it was everything that we would have hoped for her. 
Right? She was affirmed in her calling and her gifting as a writer, and she was challenged to hone her craft. And we were talking about that that night, and she actually ended up finishing this degree and, and, and really um, developing some skills as a writer, but we were talking about it that night. And as we were talking, insecurities bubbled up in her heart. What if I never write anything? What if I never write anything that's any good? Right? What if I never amount to anything in writing? And this was sort of the heart and the insecurities that she was voicing. On my part, I talked, we talked a little bit about my own uh, grandfather, who, uh, my paternal grandfather, who was uh, an actor in Hollywood, and my grandmother, who was a musician in Hollywood for most of their careers. And we kind of laughed that night as we talked about them and we talked about art, uh, and we, we laughed about the fact that there's, I don't know a lot about my grandfather, but the more that we've learned about him, the more I've actually learned about myself over the last few years. Just to give you a couple examples, um, when I was in my mid late 20s, uh, my grandfather, his name was Val Gould, he passed away. And uh, during the weekend of the funeral, we were kind of sitting around as a family, and I was looking at a lot of his sort of memorabilia, and I came across his birth certificate. So again, his name was Val Gould. But on the birth certificate, uh, I saw this name, Zelig Goldfader. So just remember, mid-20s, and I'm, I'm sitting here, first time, and I'm like, Dad, why does Grandfather have this name on his birth certificate? Zelig Goldfader. And I come to find out that my grandfather was 100% Jewish. I did not know that. And that his family emigrated from Russia in the early 19, about 1908, emigrated from Russia to Massachusetts, and then when he was 16, uh, he was born in 1912, when he was 16, he runs away from Massachusetts to go to Hollywood to become an actor. And if you know anything about uh, Hollywood in the 20s and the 30s, it was rife with anti-Semitism. And so it makes sense that Zelig Goldfader right, would change his name to Val Gould. So you can imagine myself in that, that moment in my late 20s. Suddenly I realize I'm Jewish. I'm part of the chosen one. Woo, yeah, you know, it's like, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. And plus it explains why I look the way I look. Everybody's like, are you Greek? Are you Armenian? I'm like, no, I'm Jewish, so now I know. And so that was kind of cool. Um, since that time, we've been exploring, and I've been exploring a little bit about my grandfather, and I've learned a, a bunch of sort of fun things about him. Um, I'm going to show you some pictures here. He looks a lot like me, and he looks a lot like my father, except our noses get smaller <laughs> over the years, right? And so uh, if we can go to the next slide, two slides actually, um, on the left. So this is, Grant, this is a, a picture. This is the beauty of the day, Mae West, there. This is at vaudeville. He acted in theater for a number of years with, with, uh, with Mae West and uh, many of the big actors of the day uh, in dance and in London and New York. So can anybody pick out which one is my grandfather on the left? It's, yeah, the guy on the far right. So that's, that's Val Gould there. This one's a little embarrassing um, here, but let me tell you, because it kind of looks like me with a Quaker Oats uh, outfit on. <laughs> But um, so he acted in vaudeville and did theater for a number of years, and then there was the war, and after the war he would travel in the great, uh, with Bob Hope uh, in, in Europe, and they performed in the Great Airlift Campaign and entertained the troops for about three, two or three years. And then for, from the 1950s through the 60s, for about a decade, before you had like social media, before you had the internet, what uh, companies would do to advertise is they would actually um, hire actors, and actors would travel all over the country and speak at high school assemblies, right? So that's what they would do. And so for 10 years, my grandfather dressed up as Mr. Quaker Oats, yes, that's what that is, and he would travel all over the country speaking about uh, democracy and patriotism on behalf of the Quaker Oats company, right? So every time you eat those oats in the morning, you can see my grandfather on the little, you know, circle there. There he was. 
And uh, he did movie and, mo and TV and, and radio bits and all these things. And so the more I've been learning about this, that night as we were talking about him, there's this question that began to sort of surface in my own heart. And that question was, what if, what if there's this creative part of me that hasn't surfaced yet? Like, what, if, what, if, what are those parts of my own soul that, that need to be explored? And so that was the backstory. That's the context to our tearful moment in the movie La La Land, right? We sat in that movie theater, like I said, unmasked. The story and the audition song that touched the deep longings and fears of my wife's heart. And they touched something in mine, I'm not always aware, maybe my just desire to live a great life, I don't know, or a dramatic life, but it touched something in me too, and so we wept. But that's what stories do, right? That's what art does. That's what beauty does. Plato famously said, beauty evokes desire. I can remember as we drove home that night, just sort of laughing at our response uh, to the movie, but also very much aware of the power of story to move us in ways that really nothing else does and to, to basically bypass our defenses and to touch us at the deepest levels of our heart. So what I wanna do today is I wanna talk about beauty. I wanna talk about art. And I wanna talk about the role of beauty and art in the Christian life. And the reality is that as Christians, we don't often think that beauty and art have much of a place in our lives. And even worse than that, we're confused about the nature of beauty and the role of beauty. On the one hand, secular culture gets beauty, right? Beauty is very much held captive and exploited as a kind of commodity, often to awaken our base appetites and to fleece our wallets, right? On the other hand, in the church, beauty is often in exile, except for one place, auditory beauty, right, with the worship. But for the most part, the churches, especially in America, are often ambivalent toward beauty, and at worst, they openly disdain it. And so the question I actually want us to consider this morning is, to, is this question. What is the role of beauty in the Christian life? And then one follow-up question, is there a place for beauty in the life of the church? Now, to explore this question, we're going to go to a very unexpected place. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 31, and we're going to look at God's command to Moses to build the tabernacle. And what you will find there will be, I think, quite surprising. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me now to Exodus 31. We're going to look at Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11. And, while you're, uh, and basically, I want to make three observations from the text and then give you some application, okay? While you're turning there, though, let me give you uh, the context of what's going on here in Exodus 31. So basically, in the book of Exodus, you read of Israel going out uh, and departing from the land and, uh, of Egypt, and it's the story of God's redemptive work uh, in delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt and then establishing this unique covenant relationship with the nation, so the narrative of the book of Exodus can be actually organized or understood as three blocks organized geographically, okay? So from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 16, you have Israel in Egypt. And then from chapter 13, uh, verse 17, through chapter 18, verse 27, you have and read of Israel uh, in, the wilderness, uh, in their wilderness journey. And then from chapter 19, verse 1, all the way to the end, chapter 40, you have Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, okay, where God is establishing this covenant relationship with Israel. So our passage, uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 11, is actually the penultimate section of what's called the Sinai Legal Discourse section of the narrative. That section of the narrative begins in Exodus 20, verse 1, with God's giving of the, audit, of the law, the auditory giving of the law. 
Uh, and then it ends in our chapter, in verse 18, so 31 verse 18, with God's giving of the physical tablets of the law, okay? So from 20 verse 1 to 31 verse 18, we have this coherent unit of the Sinai legal discourse. Okay, with that said, let me just read the passage, and then we'll begin to make some observations about it. So Exodus 31 verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skill, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. I've also given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table and its uh, articles, the pure gold lampstands and all of its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. And the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, they are to make them just as I commanded you. All right. So let me just make three observations from this passage. And the, the first observation is, and I think there will be a slide here for this, is I just want us to notice that there are artists in the midst of the community. Right? So in verse 2, you read of Bezalel. In verse 6, you read of um, Aholiab. And then at the end of verse 6, you read of a whole community of skilled workers, or sometimes translated craftsmen or artists, right? Now, this is actually quite striking, if you think about it. Here we have Israel, who's just escaped from hundreds of years of enslavement to Egypt, where they were performing manual labor for Pharaoh for the glory of Egypt. And you would think, given their conditions, that they don't have time to engage in artistic activities. You'd think that art and artists wouldn't flourish during this time. Surely there are more basic needs. But what you find here is a flourishing community of artists. And I think that that is significant. So, for example, verse 2, we have Bezalel, whose name in Hebrew means the shadow of God. And shadow in the Old Testament is a metaphor for one under the protection of God. So Bezalel, this artist, is under the protection of God. Moreover, in verse 2, we learn that Bezalel is a Judite, right? This is significant because the Levites were the, the ones, the only persons allowed responsibility with respect to the tabernacle and its furnishings. And so what's interesting, and we see this dichotomy, is we have a dichotomy between those who are called to serve in the house of God are selected by birth lineage, but those are who are called to build the house of God are chosen by their spiritual gifting. Very interesting dichotomy. In verse 6, you read of a Aholiab, who again is called to help uh, be Bezalel's helper. And the name Aholiab means the tent of the father. And of course, the Aholiab and Bezalel will in fact build the tent of meeting for Yahweh. Moreover, Aholiab is of the tribe of Dan, a Danite, one of the least influential and honorable uh, tribes in all of Israel. So again, we see that interesting dichotomy. Those chosen to be serving in the house of the Lord, chosen by birth lineage, those chosen to build the house of God, chosen by spiritual gifting. Finally, I do want us to notice at the end of verse 6, the whole community 
uh, of artists in the midst of Israel. And we know that there were both men and women in this community. Actually, if you would like flip over to Exodus 35, in verse 25 and 26, we learn that the women were explicitly uh, responsible for much of the fabric manufactured, and both men and women were involved in locating and contributing materials to this project. Okay? So the first observation that I want us to notice is that there are artists in their midst. The second observation you can see on the screen behind me here is that Bezalel and the rest of the artists, by extension in this passage, are called by God and filled with God's spirit. Okay? So in this passage, we have three verbs, two by God, called and filled, and then one is a response by Bezalel and the artist, and that is to make. Okay? So we want to look at each of those verbs. Let's begin with this first verb. Notice in verse 2, God calls Bezalel by name. So we have a single individual called by name to perform a specific task. And he was singled out to lead the tabernacle construction progress pro- project. And I want us to notice that God is intimately involved in the world that he has made. And he's intimately involved in the plight of his people. And he even knows who the best artists are. And he knows them by name. Right? There's no detail that is left uh, unnoticed by God. Nothing escapes And the same is true for each one of us, right? God knows the plight of his people. And there's no detail that is left unnoticed. No detail that that escapes God. So he calls Bezalel by name. Secondly, though, the second verb, and he fills Bezalel with the spirit of God. Now, this is actually quite striking, if you think about it, um, because this is the very first time in Scripture that someone is mentioned as being filled with the spirit of God. Right? If I were writing, I would think it would be Moses, maybe that's the first to be filled with the Spirit of God, or Abraham, or, or, or the Levites, maybe. What's so striking is the first instance of someone filled with the Spirit of God in the, in the Scriptures is an artist. Now, it's, it's important to understand that this filling of, with the Spirit of God is not to be understood as a new covenant uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Rather, in the context of the Old Testament, and in this passage specifically, to be filled with the Spirit should be understood as being given from God the ability to do and to say exactly what God once done and said. Okay, so being filled with the Spirit means that he would correctly construct the tabernacle and its furnishings as God wanted him to, and that's in fact exactly what he did. Okay, so we have the fact that there are artists in their midst. We have this interesting observation that the artists were called by name and filled with the Spirit of God. Third observation uh, God called Bezalel to, and we can switch, there should be another slide here. God called Bezalel and filled him with the Spirit in order to make things. What was he called to make? The tabernacle and its furnishings, art and artistic design. I love what Francis Schaeffer says in his little book, Art in the Bible, about this passage. He says this, and I'll just quote. He says, um, in God's command to Moses to make the tabernacle and its furnishings, we find every form of representational art that men have ever known. That's very interesting. Every form of representational art that men have ever known. Now, this command raises a bunch of questions as I read this passage. For example, you might ask, well, why the tabernacle? Like, what's going on with the tabernacle? Because if you think about it, given the context of where we are here in this chapter, God has rescued his people from the hands of Egypt. He's given them the cloud by day and the fire by night to lead them. He's given them the moral law to guide them and to show them how they ought to live, yet they still lacked something. And so the question is, what did they lack? 
And actually, if you flip your Bible over a few pages to the left, to Exodus 25, verse 8, we find the answer. Because Exodus 25, verse 8 says this, and this is from the Lord, they have, then have them make a sanctuary for me that I might dwell among them. That I might dwell among them. So what is it that they lacked? What is it the thing that the Israelites needed the most? And this is actually a theme from Genesis to Revelation. What they needed most is the presence of God in their midst. That's what they needed, the presence of God in their midst. So why the tabernacle? You might also wonder, why all the specific materials, right? We are leading, if we go back to Exodus 31, notice that God's command, uh, that there's all these specific materials that should be used in the tabernacle construction project. So for example, look back at verse four of chapter 31. Here you read of gold, silver, and bronze listed in descending order of value, reflecting their corresponding sanctity. Look at verse five. You read of stone and wood. Uh, Verse 10, you read of woven garments. Verse 11, you read of oil and incense. And if if you flip back again to Exodus 25, you find out more details about some of these materials. So for example, regarding the woven garments, in Exodus 25, verse four, we read of blue, purple, and scarlet materials. We read of fine linens and goat hairs, right? These garments represent the most costly dried yarns in the ancient Near East. And again, reflecting their corresponding sanctity. In Exodus 25, verse five, we read of ram skin dyed red and porpoise skin or leather and acacia wood. And again, in ancient Egypt, the acacia plant was associated with the tree of life in several myths. In Exodus 25, verse 7, we learn more of the kind of stones that are required in the tabernacle. We read of the onyx stone uh, and setting stones. And then you begin to ask yourself questions like this. When is the last time we read about onyx stones? And the answer is Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden. In verse 12, where you read, and the gold of the land is good, and the bedlam and the onyx stones are there. All in all, over 14 different materials are called for in the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings. Okay, so these questions, why the tabernacle? Why all these specific materials? Here's another question. Why the specific pattern, right? What's so interesting about this um, is is you uh, you, you have God delineating and defining and ordering in all these different ways. In verse nine of chapter 25, it says, make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then from chapter 25 all the, way, all the way to chapter 30, I call them the flyover passages, right? Because they're extremely boring because they're very detailed about how the tabernacle should be constructed and how the furniture should be constructed and things like this. And it, all of this begins to raise this question. Um, when was the last time that you heard God delineating and defining and ordering and setting boundaries and creating with beauty and order and abundance? And hopefully, this should begin to awaken something in you, because the last time that we saw this was in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? And the central joy of the Garden of Eden, Eden meaning delights, the Garden of Delights was the presence of God himself. And so the question about the tabernacle, why the tabernacle, is answered because in this way. The tabernacle is the place where God dwells, and it's meant to be a reminder of home, It's meant to be a reminder of a time when man was truly happy, right? Capital H, happy. When the world was the way it ought to be. And that's the purpose 
of the tabernacle, to remind us of a time when man was known and loved and accepted and that all things were as they ought to be. I love how one theologian of of beauty puts it. Uh, he, He says that... Um, the experience of beauty is a kind of theological amnesis, and that's a weird word, but it just means a kind of remembering, right? So when we experience beauty, it's meant to point us back to remembering this time when everything was as it should be. It's kind of provocative. It also points us, I think, to a time when all things will be made right again. It points us to the future, Revelation 21 and 22, where we experience once again the unmediated presence of God in our midst. Okay, so we've looked at the passage. We've made a couple, a few observations here. The question, does God care about art and beauty and the imagination? Well, Scripture's resounding answer is yes. Art is not meant to be an object of worship, but it is meant to aid worship. And I think we can go a little step further there, right? Because in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what you find is God is a master artist, right? It's his pattern for the tabernacle. It's our home that he's creating and cultivating in the opening chapters of Genesis. And I love how Andy Crouch, who wrote a book called Culture Making, he, he notes that in the creation account of Genesis, it reveals God as an artist and a gardener, right? A creator and a cultivator of the good and the true and the beautiful. And of course, as men and women who are created in the image of God, we too are creators and cultivators of the good and the true and the beautiful. Okay, let me pull some strings together uh, and give some application. We can, we can wrap this up. So uh, I love, Tim Keller wrote an article, uh, a chapter in a, in a book once, uh, reflecting on this passage. And he asked three questions that I think will kind of help us reflect on, on how we can apply this to our lives. Okay, so I want to use his, Keller's three questions as sort of our foil. So in that, in that essay, he asks, why do we have artists? You know, why do we have artists? Remember, we find them in the midst of Israel, even after years of slavery, when God's people live in all these squalid conditions, yet we still see this thriving artistic community. And here's what Keller's answer was there. He says, um, we have artists because they have the ability to see the greater reality. To see the greater reality. In other words, artists see things in the proper light. They see them as enchanted, as mysterious, as beautiful, and to use the proper word, as sacred, right? Craftsmen who transfigure matter and reveal a deep beauty, or a musician who crafts a melody, a beautiful melody, or a storyteller or a poet who lifts us out of the mundane and gives us a glimpse of home, right? A moment of exhale where we pull that curtain back and we see reality as it really is. This is why we have artists. So we have artists, as our passages suggested, uh, but we also want to know why, why do we need artists, Keller asks. And here's, here's his answer. Keller says that um, we have artists because they help us to understand, and in understanding to enjoy truth. And in understanding and enjoying truth, they lead us to worship. So we have artists because we know at the level of our guts that there is meaning in this world, and there's meaning in what we do, and there's meaning in what we make of this world too, right? And so beauty and art and the imagination help us see the meaning behind things. And I think that beauty awakens us. Think of that that tearful moment. There's something about that beautiful moment that awakens something in our own hearts. And it awakens us to live, uh, to long for a better world and a place where we experience life the way it ought to be. And then there's a third question. So we have artists, 
We need artists. And then Keller asked, well, then how can we all be artists, right? If we are part of what it means to be in the image of God is to be an artist and a gardener, a creator and a cultivator, the good, the true, and the beautiful, how can we be artists? And Keller's answer in his essay is basically that we need to affirm those who are called vocationally to be artists professionally, and then we all need to go and, and live our lives faithfully. And I think that that's actually a really great answer. But I think we can just dig a little bit deeper, and let me give you three specific ways that I think we can all be artists in our lives, okay? So here it is, a little suggested way forward. Um, given the fact that we are creators and cultivators of the things we make and the meaning we make in this world, I think, first, as artists and gardeners, my challenge to you would be to bring beauty back into your life and into the church, right? In all the things that you make in this world, make them with beauty in mind, whether it's an omelet or an outfit or a sermon or a bridge or a building or a car or a movie or a story or a tweet or a painting or a PowerPoint presentation, or a movie review, or a landscape. Make them with beauty in mind. And resist the temptation, as we're so good as evangelicals, to value pragmatics or utility only, right? Resist that temptation in the things you make. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is simply to realize that the most beautiful thing that you can do is to locate your life in the great story of God, right? That is the most beautiful thing that you can do, is to find your meaning and your identity and your purpose in the true story of the world, a story that is alive and inviting and a story that actually understands you, right? Because we get in the true story of the world, we get the point of all good stories, which is Jesus Christ, right? And so live your life as part of the divine drama and find your meaning in the gospel and then invite others to find their lives in this gospel as well. And then finally, I would wanna say listen to beauty's call and find your way home. Now there's this really, uh, in closing, there's this really provocative phrase that I came across in reading the book The Idiot by Dostoevsky. And here's the phrase, I think it's on the slide. The phrase was, beauty will save the world. And I can remember coming across this phrase the first time I heard it, and I thought, that's obviously false, right? I'm a philosopher, I wanna assess these claims. I mean, give me, give me a, a, a military might, or give me money, or power, political power, then maybe we can save the world. But beauty? How does beauty save the world? But the more I've been thinking about it, the more I think there's a sense in which this is exactly right. Because I'm reminded of what Augustine said in the Confessions, book three. Uh, the Confessions, wonderful spiritual autobiography written uh, by St. Augustine. In book three, he says this about God. He says, you are the beauty of all beautiful things. And then he says, you are the good of all good things. And I would just add, you are the truth in which all true things point. So there is a sense in which beauty will save the world because as it turns out, beauty is found in a person, right? The person of Christ who is the savior of the world. And what Christ did on the cross is take all the ugliness, all the pain, all the, the, the suffering and all the evil in the world and he took it upon himself so that we could find wholeness, so that we could find peace and so that we can, in a sense, come home, right? And experience life the way it ought to be in part and one day fully. So it is the case that beauty will save the world. So my plea in closing, bring beauty back, out of exile and back into the church and back into your life, not as an object of worship, not as an idol, but as an aid to worship, to remind us of the beauty of Christ and the beauty of the gospel story. And in doing so, invite others to see Jesus as the true object of our longing and the source of all that is good, true, and beautiful. 
Let me pray for you, and as I do, I invite the band to come back up. Lord, I thank you for the great truth here of this passage, that you care about beauty and you care about art because you are a God who creates a world full of beauty and order and abundance. And Lord, I'm mindful of Ephesians 2.10 this morning as I think about the, the wonderful phrase that we, each of us is created as a masterpiece, as literally a work of art. And then it says that we've each been created in Christ Jesus to do a good work which you prepared in advance for us before the foundations of the world. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that they would know that they are a work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And will we pick up that call and follow you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.